In 2018, the Wealth Standard Podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism. For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. My guest today is Steve Mariotti, and he is regarded as the world's leading advocate for entrepreneurship education. He's the, the founder and former president of the Global Nonprofit Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, NFTE. He also is a senior fellow for entrepreneurship at Rising Tide Capital, and he is the author of a few best-selling books and textbooks, uh, Entrepreneurship, Starting and Operating a Small Business, Entrepreneurship and Small Business Management, which I believe is a textbook, correct, Steve? Those are all textbooks, yes. Those textbooks, yep. And then the new book, which is Goodbye, Homeboy, How My Students Drove Me Crazy and Inspired a Movement. And also, he is working on a film called The Triumph of the Entrepreneurial Spirit that is forthcoming. So, Steve, it is, I can't wait for this interview. I'm super excited to, uh, to meet you and, and talk with you. So, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Well, I'm glad to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> so, Steve, I think, you know, maybe a way which we can lead the conversation off is maybe you talking about those, you know, a couple of those significant experiences of your life that shaped your perspective of, yourself and what was available to you, but also the potential that lies within all human beings, most human beings, I would say. I think that the ability to find a comparative advantage or a niche um, is within every human being. And it's part of what makes us human. And it's like um, uh, the ability to think to be aware of oneself. It's just, I think, part of humanity. And often by accident, I don't think it's done intentionally, at least not in this country, but it gets stifled for many reasons. And I think that's something that should be discussed on a national level, a continual level, a continual kind of a lot. And it's a concern of mine that in the um, debates in the election really beginning 2016, I have not heard any conversation on education except in one debate and that I timed it and it was a minute 56 seconds and <laughs> if you go back and you look at the debates in 2016, it wasn't mentioned at all. And yet, I think education is critical to any discussion of solving any problem, whether it be poverty or health or self-actualization or um, happiness. Really, that's a key ingredient. So a major reason I wrote Goodbye Homeboy 
which is my memoirs as a high school teacher in New York City, special ed teacher in the South Bronx. Very proud of that. Very happy years for me, where I required every student who, each of whom had dropped out of school. So I had to convince them to come back into an off-site program. Legally, they couldn't go back into a public school, a regular school building. But I, I convinced them. And then we spent a year and a half, almost two years, each working on a business uh, two to three hours a day. And then we do other activities. So this concept of helping people find their niche, what they like to do, and what they can do based on their knowledge of unique time and space, which means you don't have to be the best at it. You just have to be the best at it at a point in time in a particular space. And that when people realize that, it can be life-changing. Well, first off, you know, as you have had these experiences, I mean, here are, you know, those that essentially have been, you know, labeled as not necessarily fit for, you know, the, the public school system or, or regular school, right? So they have this late label on them. And then you bring to them some ideas. What is it about those ideas that got the light switch to, to flip on? Like, what was the connection that they made, in your opinion? I think the most important thing is the concept of ownership, that you can actually own something is many times not uh, taught to low-income people. And they will be encouraged to view life as receiving something that they don't really own. So I always talk about ownership. If I had my career, a 40-year career to do over, I think I would have emphasized the concept of owning and entrepreneurship as being a tactic, one tactic, to get to owning, you know, ideally your time. I mean, that's the, the most valuable thing. The second more tactical or practical concept, which is really important, and I hope you'll try it with your, um, your own children, is that many people, uh, young people and people in poverty, will think that there's one price. So they'll think this book is uh, $16 in a bookstore not realizing that there's a wholesale price, manufacturer's price, jobber's price, and that's true for any good. So the majority of the world's population is not aware of the concept of the production structure. And when someone learns that and actually experiences it, it's as life-changing as anything I ever saw as a teacher. And we assume that knowledge, but vast majority of people in the world only exposed to a retail price and are left out of these huge opportunities to buy something and then resell it or buy something and use it and save money. It's also interesting that there's a huge population that also is unaware, right? So it's not the fact that there are some people that are unaware. It's a big population, which creates kind of a social 
belief or social, you know, understanding of how things work. And therefore the narrative and the dialogue is, is drastically impacted. If only a few people understand value chain and where things start and where things end. So it's a, that's an interesting, very interesting comment that I think you can see in the political space, but we're not here to talk about the political, political space. Mayo, maybe, would you maybe talk about the, you know, the story of your book and maybe the, the film that you're working on right now with regard to some, and correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the countries that are emerging, that are, are experiencing poverty and what the ideas taught through entrepreneurship have been able to, to do to help to improve their life. Absolutely. I do want to just back step for one second and say that, in my opinion, the most political act somebody can do is create a business. Because essentially, you're defining a space um, that you have a lot of control over. And people never think of it that way. But I think it's very healthy to think of it that way because it's an alternative to the tendency to have a centralized power, the 191 different governments, and rather look at it as a political, that each person has political empowerment, often through the creation of a small business. I went to Cambodia, and it was life-changing for me. I went in 2012, and the State Department, the American State Department, asked me to go and covered all my expenses. It was wonderful. And I had read all about the genocide there, three million people out of eight million were murdered without the use of bullets. And I'd read it, I didn't quite understand it. I read pretty much 90% of the literature. I literally spent three, four hundred hours before I went. And I landed and I thought I had a feel of it. But going around the country, and lecturing on small business. And even my first lecture was 95% women. And I said, well, why is it 95% women? And the woman host, just a wonderful entrepreneur, wonderful person, she said, well, the men were all uh, killed. And I knew that, but hearing it and being there and then seeing museums of skulls and my secretary picked up a human tooth while we were being given tours of the killing field and it was you know i've heard about a white light moment where you have a gestalt view and it changes your life but that moment was went right to the center of my being and i said to myself whatever i could do with my remaining years here to prevent this type of of pain and suffering and murder on a mass scale that I was going to do that. And so ironically, I was then invited to Hanoi by the uh, government there. And in my generation, going to Hanoi was like, I was in the sixties and it was just, surreal and talking to the leaders of the um, the government and they say well 
what can we do to encourage small business here in Vietnam, which has the highest growth rate in the world? I think it's almost 9%. And I, I warmed to the topic and got very um, professorial, so to speak. And well, uh, I think first we should get your tax code right and have a flat, maybe 10% tax. And low-income people wouldn't pay any tax so they get out of poverty. You know, I'm embarrassed when I think about it. And there's this long silence and this very kind man and looks at me and he goes, uh, Mr. Mariotti, that, that is our tax code. And I was shocked. And because I had a picture of a socialist centralized state allocating resources, determining prices, you know, all that kind of thing. I said, how did you learn that? And much to the credit of technology and Elon and all these geniuses that it so helped the world, I think. He goes, well, we were watching the presidential debates four years ago, and Steve uh, uh, Forbes he says, kept advocating for a flat tax. And we were all over at, at Moon's house, and Moon said, why don't we try that? <laughs> so they, they go on the next day, they change the tax code. <laughs> And totally from a labor theory of value where everything is determined by a centralized group of people, the prices, well, that should be $4, nah, nah, $5, so there's no supply and demand to a completely decentralized system with low taxes. And they said, I said, you're kidding me. And how long did it take? for you to see a, re, a change. They said three or four days. People hadn't, hadn't been able to get you know, goods to repair their homes, tile, this. And all of a sudden, they said, you'd see people out in the streets trading. And at first it started as barter. And then within two weeks, there was money. Then gold started to come out. And Vietnam began to... Boom. And they, they were all reading. This is what I'll never forget it. They were all reading F.A. Hayek, who, you know, as you know, won the Nobel and is a big advocate of free markets. And so, uh, you know, they had totally left the Marxist Leninist view of centralized demand economy. And it was just a very beautiful moment in, in my memories of my life. So I hope I explained that well. No, you, it was amazing. And I, and I look at, you know, I'm not sure if there's a, a, a magic formula, right, for these, you know, emerging countries that want their citizenship to come out of poverty and to, and to, to thrive. But I know that infrastructure is, is one of them, right? Whether it's the structure of property laws, you know, defining even intellectual property laws, physical property laws, intellectual property laws. It's also formation of business and the ease there, but then also coming down into you know the uh, the tax code, right? And, and what you allow, what people take home. I mean, I think there's all there's that, and so that I would say infrastructure. You can have all of the education in the world, and if you don't have that infrastructure, right? Then I don't think the education and drive that an entrepreneur would have would work as well. So that's where it's like you know when you went in and were consulting with them. 
how did you add value in that situation based on your background in education? You know, I was so shocked by, because nothing that I had read had indicated that Vietnam had gone to a flat tax. So I didn't know that. And I probably wasn't the charming, intelligent person that you're listening to today. I was like stunned and then wanted to be in a a learning mode. So I let them talk to me about how they'd gone from one of the poorest countries that had been devastated. Six million people were uh, just Vietnamese were uh, killed uh, during the uh, the American involvement there. Another million in Cambodia, and we're not sure how many in Laos. And uh, that's just was officially recorded. And their industry destroyed, the value system uprooted. But to come back from that, I mean, I remember being in Hanoi, and it was booming. And then they said, well, you've got to go down to Saigon. And we'll cover your uh, trip. And uh, this gentleman here will be your guide. And I went down to Saigon. And it was like, wow. You know, businesses everywhere. Energy. In my understanding, this has gotten better that they're even doubling every eight years. And so that was the most vivid display, the power of the concept of voluntary um, relationships being allowed between people when you, you just let adults, you know, work out their own problems. So yeah, I don't know how much value I actually added, unfortunately. Well, you, but, created the con- you created the conversation and that's, and I think in and of itself is, is powerful because when you look at countries that have difficulty and go through those trying times, you know, it's easy to throw a check at them or throw, or throw money to fix the problem and alleviate things. But does that really create the lasting change, right? That allows someone to thrive personally. And that's where it's interesting, you know, this whole conversation, which I didn't, you know, pl- plan on, but what's going through my mind is this you know, this idea, whether it's in the States or whether it's outside the United States, it's this whole, it's this whole notion of ownership. It's, it's having, knowing that you are responsible for the results of your life. And I'm not sure if that's the right way to, to explain it, but it's knowing that you did something and got a result from it. Not that someone did something for you and you got a result. I think there are two different experiences there. And, and I look at, you know, how our, our school system is set up right now, which was, you know, in large part, a function of, of Horace Mann's vision, you know, back before the turn of the century. And it's this idea that, you know, the, the United States started on this entrepreneurial footing, in a sense, where people wanted to come here and, you know, in a sense, control or own the means of production, which, they, which wasn't readily available, you know, where they came from. And then it was kind of flipped on its head. And, and now, you know, a system in which, like uh, the Prussian school system, which was you know, designed for military, you know, training military as well as uh, factory workers. I think that totally threw this, this idea of, you know, what gets people to thrive, what gets people excited, what gets people to, you know, feel like they have, uh, you know, a professionally meaningful life. And I don't know, and, and that this conversation is bringing up those thoughts in, in my mind because, you know, you're experiencing it in, in these uh, countries that are, 
you know, they're emerging, but also what most would consider, you know, just very poor and would not otherwise thrive. But you're seeing opportunities in which people are recognizing that it is possible for them. They're recognizing that there is kind of an entrepreneurial seed inside of them that can be responsible for their life and provide for their families and provide for themselves, which is, which is profound. I couldn't agree more. And I was very actively listening because the sentences were, were very powerful to me because I think a, a major error that could have been a, a huge home run and, and did a lot of good, but somehow took a turn. I think we've got to discuss more. You never hear it discussed is that for low income children in particular, and many middle class children, and by that I mean from a social of the resources that their families have financially, not spiritually or in any other way, but often get um, limited choices in their educational and in many of the urban areas, uh, without mentioning any particular city because it's it's endemic really to the system a child will be assigned to a particular school and have to stay there for years even if she doesn't like it or he doesn't like it and in some school districts if they they allow the schools to advertise to be aerodynamic or uh, space uh, you know very esoteric sexy names and the young person will go and once they've been there one year they can't transfer out now i love the teaching community i've spent really 40 years in k-12 through education is really my whole career and i have so many friends that are teachers in high school and junior high and elementary and love the community to be honest with you but the design of the system, sadly, which Horace uh, Mann was an advocate and did come out of the Hegelian Prussian system, I think somewhere along the line, it ended up doing damage, particularly to children that have limited choices to begin with. Of anybody who you want to be able to maximize, their choices in life it's those with limited resources because one error they don't have a chance to correct it and uh i think just figuring that out how do you get choice into education would be a huge breakthrough in our um, society and the people gets my friends upset but I think it's true, and I don't want to feel intimidated not to say it, but the people that are often hurt the worst by non-choices, by preventing choices, are actually the teachers themselves. The prison system is in part based, not totally, but in part based on second grade reading scores. You've got a forecast of prison out between 10 and 15 years. You're talking about a multi-billion dollar investment. Uh, a maximum security prison 
is a billion dollar budget for 2,400 of prisoners. So, and to build it, I'm not sure what those numbers are because I hear different ones, but it's multi-billion dollars. So they don't want to make a major error. They start by looking at first, second, third grade uh, reading scores. So I've always thought, gee whiz, who would be the highest paid person in a community if there was more choice allowed? It would be, a, for me, you know, I think possibly be a good second grade reading teacher. Think of the value there. Uh, they'd be equal to any surgeon. And so markets get distorted. And that's never a good thing because not only does it limit choice, but it limits feedback and information between people. You know, I've thought a lot lately about how our personality and the way in which we operate, whether it's, you know, our vernacular, whether it's our you know, the way we raise our, our children, you know, how we treat ourselves, how we treat, you know, uh, someone of the opposite sex uh, relationships in, in large part is formed when we're young. And I think our young minds are very, are plastic, right? And they're so vulnerable to ideas and ways of doing things. And, and that's where I look at the, you know, school system. Again, it's one of those, it's one of those operations that, has so much potential to completely change, you know, the, the face of humanity. And, and I believe that, you know, it will because when things are not working, you know, what ends up happening is, you know, it, it gets too painful <laughs> and, then, and things change, right? And right now, you know, right now, obviously we're experiencing a lot with just kind of the theoretical approach that you and I are talking about, but then you have a financial approach as well. And, and I think there's, you know, some uh, results that end up putting a person into a, a camp where, you know, criminal activity is the, is the way in which they, they operate. But I also, you know, look at just the student loan debt crisis that we're, that we're in right now, where kids are paying exorbitant amounts of school fees, but are not getting the return as far as the training uh, and the information they're getting in order to be relevant and, and profitable in, in the workforce. It's, it's, I just, I mean, I, I literally came from an interview right now. We were interviewing a girl. I, I did not once ask about degrees or, or experience in school or anything. It was amazing. But the idea of how, you know, the, the workforce is evolving and then also just the political arena, right, is stagnant. And then the schooling system is stagnant, but yet people are just so thirsty and hungry to succeed, to excel, to make something of their life. It's just an interesting cro crossroads. So maybe maybe a question would be with you know the the books you've written whether it's the textbooks or uh, the the film that you're doing just the experience you've had over the last you know several decades in this kind of entrepreneurial mindset like what are you seeing in the political environment the the educational environment not necessarily in the West but just you know globally that is uh, that's giving you hope that's showing you that there's progress in a lot of different in a lot of different facets. Well, great question. First of all, I'm a huge optimist agree that when we've made a, a long turn, the pain, the feedback from it becomes so great that we end up uh, back on a better road. And that's why I'm so interested in getting discussions going about education, regardless of what views come out. But I remember in the 60s growing up, 
And you couldn't go 24 hours without a debate about what was being taught, how it was being taught, the whole homeschool market. John Holt was in that. It was discussed constantly. And I think a lot of good came from that. So that's my biggest worry is when things aren't discussed and then you can, you can get in a real rut. I think from a positive view is I think the internet is a game changer and that we're just beginning at, we're at the 1% mark of all the uses that this incredible connections are. I mean, when they said to me in Vietnam, we were watching the presidential debates, and Steve Forbes said, let's do a flat tax. And Ming said, why don't we try it? <laughs> that, I realized then the power of the information, the ability to share information. Having said that, I was in uh, Silicon Valley on a tour recently, which has been one of the great birthplaces of creativity, wealth, a lot of great things have come out of that community in 30, 40 years. It's just been remarkable. And in certain prep schools, the owners of these very successful companies would say, well, we don't allow uh, the use of screens during school time. And so that really piqued my interest. I pushed on it. And they don't, in certain schools, they don't allow cell phones or computers during school time. So you have Socratic method, you have group work, you have art, you have reading time, primarily on books. You know, there's research that reading on a screen lowers uh, comprehension by at least 25% universally. There's this interesting woman uh, named uh, Wolf. She just moved from Tufts University to UCLA as director of cognitive studies. And her, her works is not as well known as it should be or publicized as much as it should be. But she spent, has spent uh, at least a decade, I've read all of her, her stuff and all the footnotes too, but all the research says that actual reading from screens lowers your ability to understand that great book on Walt that Disney, which I actually own, and they don't know why yet, but I sense it. But I hope that added to our fascinating conversation. I think I may have gone off. No, no, it truly has. And it's interesting. What's going through my what's going through my mind is we live in this very complex world, and I think people have retreated to the familiar. They've retreated to, you know, what's been the custom, and it's difficult to make these, you know, very large scale type of, of changes. But what I've seen and experienced, it's those very simple to understand ideas. It's not complex. It's simple that anyone can understand that uh, produces a, a really big result. And that's what I wanted to, to maybe discuss as some of, maybe some of our final points. There's thousands of books, tens of thousands, maybe even more about business, about entrepreneurship, that the information is there, right? We have more information than you can consume in a hundred lifetimes, maybe more at our fingertips. 
as you've seen people's life change because of one idea, which is this entrepreneurship idea, like what is that idea to somebody? What do they connect with that the information now becomes way more relevant than it was before and it inspires and it motivates them to do more? Because I think that right there, if you could package that up, that idea, whatever it, whatever it is, and just simply explain that to someone, maybe that's one of those variables that moves the needle. But what would you say to that in your experience? Like, what are those connections where people, you know, like in, in your book, where their whole life changes, their whole future trajectory completely shifts because of connecting one idea to whether it's making money or owning a business or what is that? Like, how do you characterize that or think about that? There's two thoughts that come to mind under this whole concept of the entrepreneurial mind frame, which is basically been what we've struggled with for decades now, is the ability to be alert to information and different opportunities. And I, I thought about that nonstop, really, for 25, 30 years. And then I'm reading randomly an article, and within it was this paragraph that one-third of self-made, by self, no one's self-made, but somebody who's born with limited resources who becomes a billionaire, one-third of them start off as dyslexic. And I've, I've had dyslexia and have struggled with it in different forms really my whole life. I had a reading problem. I've always had organizational putting things in order. It's, it's something that is, unless you've been there, it's kind of hard to, to understand. My secretary will walk in and go, how can this look normal to you? <laughs> and yet, to me, that's basically how my mind is. It's a picture, not a staircase, so to speak. And so I thought a lot about that and then started reading and talking about it. And the literature is starting to point out, and I happen to agree with this body of thought, that having something that is looks like a liability when one is a child, you're mocked, you get the C minus, you're asked to stay after school, you're not, I live in Princeton, love the community, but you're probably not going to go to, you know, one of the top rated schools and, and everybody asks you about that and stuff. But you learn something else, and that is how to build teams. And all the Disney being a classic example, you know, grit, you went bankrupt seven times, not personally, but the business, Henry Ford twice, on and on and on. And so grit and the ability to build a team around you that is helping with a vision that you all have. And dyslexics have to do that. I remember my whole life, third grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, the simplest things, it would take me 15 minutes to, the people around me would like me, care about me, recognize that I had a unique way of um, 
handling paper and this and that and this and that. And they, they always come to my aid. And the, when I read one third Schwab, Branson, English, the, the results also apply to Great Britain. And, uh, that was a huge insight, intellectual breakthrough uh, for me. There's actually at Yale a center on the study of dyslexia. Hmm. And if you go to Yale Dyslexia, big website, there's a husband and wife a team who are both uh, medical doctors who've devoted their career to studying dyslexia. And they started off with, well, how do we solve it? And gradually, I think, and I don't want to speak for them, but uh, gradually they started adding all these successful people on the website that were enormously game changer successes. And you look at it and you go, oh, she has dyslexia? And it's just unbelievable. And you, then you go back and you read the literature and they were all people that had the knack for admitting that I need help. And then people rally to help you. So I think that's a huge clue in wealth creation for every country and every human being alive and will lead to many other insights, I think. It's such a profound point because, you know, I look at, you know, the typical schooling, you're taught to work as an individual, right? <laughs> if you work in, if you work with somebody else, it's cheating, <laughs> you know, and you're almost kind of like conditioned to not work with other people. It's backwards. Yeah. And I didn't think of that until in depth, until after I read the article about dyslexia turning into gray wealth. It's not an obvious point, to, at least it wasn't for me, because, it, well, as a teacher, I would always let them work in groups, but I wasn't thinking of it from that point of view. I was thinking of it that one child could teach another. But I guess now that I'm talking about it, it it's very similar to uh, that insight. And no one, I think, creates great wealth, wins a Nobel, finds a vaccine, discovers this or that without a team. It's always a magnitude of people that are combining their, their thoughts. And I think that if that were the driving philosophy, think of how things would change. You know, in the business world, right, culture, I mean, there's, there's these new buzzwords, but at the same time, there's so much merit to them, which is, you know, culture, teamwork, okay? Pro I mean, you have whole systems built around people playing different roles, but working together for a common objective. And they all have different roles, different skill sets, but yet those are typically identified after uh, schooling, right? After someone has been, you know, essentially conditioned in a certain way. And, it's, and that's fascinating because, yeah, I look at what children naturally do, which is play together. I mean, I have a, I have a pretty big gap between my five-year-old and my 13-year-old. And so my son gets to play with a lot of different, you know, a lot of different kids. And it's so natural when they get together. It's kind of that awkward, you know, in the beginning, they're kind of awkward and don't know, you know, a little bit shy, but then they're like best friends playing. I mean, I think we're human beings are meant to work together. We're meant to play together, have fun together. But yet when it comes to us learning and, and understanding information and, and learning how to apply that information, 
we're taught to do it or conditioned to do it individually. It's, an, it's, it's such a fascinating point. And if that connection could be made, I mean, think of what, think of what would change. A lot of things would change in society. For the better, I think, significantly. And like they said in Vietnam, you know, I said, well, how long did it take before you started to see these benefits? And they all thought about it and they said, oh, four days. couple days. <laughs> yeah. One person said, no, it was the next day after you announced it. And, and uh, it's uh, now here's where it gets really interesting and which is an issue that also needs to be discussed openly. And that is that from a legal viewpoint, who owns is critical. So what I have been thinking about a lot the last decade is how do you get people to work in teams and yet not have one person own it because their parent is an intellectual property lawyer or they just, you know, their uncle is. It's almost always transferred that the concept of intellectual property is very seldom, in my experience, learned on one's own because it's such a a long space of time to develop that thinking of patents, trademarks, copyrights. Certain countries believe in it and, you know, actually don't view it as a valid thought process. So reconciling this concept of teamwork. And I went back and started to read, which I urge everybody to read, which is the Capitalist Manifesto written in 1958 by Lewis Kelso, who subsequently created ESOPs by going to Huey Long, who was running the tax uh, subcommittee. And he said, listen, I want you to put in there that companies that create ways for workers to own will get a tax benefit by not having the owners not having to pay tax on dividends. And that one insight, which didn't quite take hold for some reason, which I don't really understand, but that insight of employee stock ownership uh, plans so that everybody is benefiting from this great value of team work and this unlimited information that we're, we're headed toward. Because you don't want 1% owning, you know, 94% of the resources. It's not sustainable. Too many people feel left out. The political system enables politicians to say, if you vote for me, you'll be part of that. You'll move up and we'll bring that 1% down. And that's one of the worst things you can do. Rather, if we could approach it from an intellectual viewpoint of how does everyone learn basic principles of intellectual property uh, law and ownership and then learn how to self-advocate because so many uh, determination of who owns what is self-assertion and then knowing the concepts, the words, percentages. I did this to bring this deal together or I did this to help this situation. I think I should own 
the difference between saying that and not saying it and being put in a worker category where you're on the income statement, but you're part of salaries and you don't get any part of the profit, which is a, always a multiple of earnings, the value. That's the intellectual issue that I think we should be talking about and thinking about because otherwise you end up going down these very tricky paths where someone who has power begins to determine that. And it always ends up in a disaster. So what so Steve, one of the one of the interviews that I did this past summer, again, on, on this entrepreneur uh, theme that we've been on, is he was one of the founding uh, engineers at, at Carta. Have you ever heard of Carta before? I have, but I don't remember how, and I apologize. Yeah, so Carta, the CEO, Henry Ward, has this theory and philosophy, which is very much part of, of what Carta does, is that you know we're, we're evolving as a society from a work standpoint, right? Work has gone from serfdom Okay, to slavery, and now it's kind of in this, you know, uh, paycheck or an employee, but it's going to ownership, and and how he you know uses that philosophy with Carta is that Carta is the biggest platform that manages ESOPs for some of the biggest companies that are that are out there, as well as private company uh, ownership and 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 so forth, and it's an amazing platform. But what it's doing for companies is it's allowing them to easily again this comes down it comes down to what we had mentioned uh you know a, a few minutes ago which is the str- which is the infrastructure right when the infrastructure is hard it doesn't matter how much theory you have nobody's going to do anything when it's clunky it doesn't work if you don't have a a property system where you have title and it's a a very transparent and accurate way to prove ownership of something then people are not going to go develop a piece of land. They're not going to improve a property. They're not going to, without proof of ownership, it's going to be very difficult for that entrepreneurial bug to set in when it comes to that property. But what he, you know, is advocating is when you eat, make it easy for a company to put equity as a means to compensate, right? When it's easy and it's easily valued, right? Objectively valued, then that inspires, as you just mentioned, a different energy inside of an employee where they're there for a paycheck, but they're also there for something more. And what does that marginal increase do? That margin can make a huge difference in a, in a company. Uh, but the ease of doing it is what's, uh, it's what's important. And, you know, there was some, there was some tax change with regards to ESOPs in the, you know, 2017 that most people just don't know about. Most companies don't know, don't know about. And there's also a very, very lucrative tax incentive for employees when they are able to, you know, cash out and liquidate in a, ser- you know, a, a series A or, or a liquidity event with a company where they don't have to pay taxes on companies that are up to, I think, like $50 million in revenue or something like that. So the pathway is starting to form for what you're mentioning, which is, which is interesting because I have a lot of, uh, yeah, I have a lot of opinion and I love that philosophy because it empowers people to take ownership, even if it's something small, but it's taking ownership of something that they do, like their work, they get a paycheck, but then they'll get a multi, you know, they'll get upside as well as part of their compensation. So I think the, the, the landscape is, uh, the landscape's changing and it's, and it's pretty, pretty exciting. And, you know, we're not surprised. I mean, th- this is something like, there are a ton of challenges, but you and I are like, well, there's somebody working on that. There's probably somebody working on that. There's a lot of people working on these different challenges. 
right? It's just only a matter of time, you know, before, you know, they're actually widely known and start to make a big difference, a big difference where people notice it, right? So it's uh, just fascinating to have these conversations. But yeah, so now hopefully you have a different reference for Carta. They're doing some really cool things. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing company. And I'm, I'm going to spend, you taught me a lot because I had not understood Carta. People would mention passing and I could never get by tomorrow morning. I'm going to have read all the literature I possibly can find. And example that I think of was in 46 when MacArthur was kind of dictator over Japan. And one of his first orders was that every a Japanese citizen, and if, if I'm wrong on this, or you know, I'd be glad to get feedback and, and learn about it because I've just been able to find four or five references to it. But he made everybody go out with a piece of chalk and draw what they owned between the homes, which had never been done before. And that one act was one of the things that allowed Japan to boom in the following years. People knew, just the way you said, exactly what they had to negotiate with their neighbors after 50 years of never talking about it. And probably wasn't perfect, but boy, did it create well. That wonderful man who I see in Davos, I uh, have read all of his uh, books on capital, uh, the pre- uh, gentleman in Peru, he's just a genius, has done similar work about... He, uh, Hernando de Soto? He's genius. I have all of his books lined up and try to look at them, one of them. Um, He's actually the next interview after you. So, oh, are you serious? <laughs> you can't be serious, really. Would you yeah. tell him that I salute him? Oh, absolutely. We met at Davos, and I read all of his literature. I asked for his autograph. That's how much I admire him. I've never done that before. His ideas and are he, amazing. He game changer. He's game changer. And that concept of thinking about even if we don't get it right the first year, decade, two decades, and maybe there'll be a setback here and there. But talking about it, discussing this, what is wealth and how can you uh, spread it and create it? You use the, have used the word infrastructure three or four times. And I'm fascinated by that word because it's usually used, and I think of it as the roads and the bridges, but it's I think of it as an intellectual infrastructure. Totally. Is that how you were using it? Absolutely. Oh, I didn't know that. I was gonna. I was kind of scared to bring it up for fear you'd say, "Steve, you're never coming on this show again." <laughs> but that's how I think of it, and I think that's the the primary concept under that, and out of that will come millions of different thoughts and permutations of, of interactions between people, which, uh, you know, if we could get this right and really start to free up people to exchange on a decentralized basis, everybody would be better off, including the professional politicians would be a thousand times better off. And they could get more media and 
you know, not have to do as much work and not be as angry with each other. It'd be way more resources. We could do theater. You know, <laughs> I'm half kidding, but no, you're to- but you're spot on at the same time uh-huh. because there's so many fundamental challenges of society, right? That are really easy to solve if, and I, and I would consider the seed of that infrastructure as just a trust in humanity, right? A trust that this is part of what makes up a, a human being, right? Is the drive to provide value and take the resources around you and figure out ways in which you can exchange. And people thrive off of the idea that they know, or not the idea, but the knowledge that they did something okay, and got a return for doing something. So as simple as that, people thrive off of like that, that type of uh, experience. And if yeah, you know, the underlying infrastructure trusted that, right, I think the world would, would, would change. But I don't think it does trust that based on what exists right now. But I think it's getting to the point where you know, nobody trusts it. You know, nobody trusts politicians anymore. They don't trust you know, centralized powers that are dictating every, everything. I think people are fed up with it, but they don't know necessarily where to, where to go. But I would say it's going to, you know, one of those first dominoes is a, is a, is a trust in, you know, human, human nature that it will not all the time, but that more than not do the right thing and do things that are conducive to a healthy society. I totally agree. I want to footnote one concept and that is the concept of error and mistakes. People will make, if you can be 51% right, you'll be one of the best in the world at what you do. You don't have to be right. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the, uh, without mentioning any, any names, and I, I don't like to do that, but before the um, a downturn in 2008, there was a firm on uh, Wall Street, and uh, you know the people were all great and everything. But they had this viewpoint of I'd go in there and meet with their top executives, and it was we never make mistakes here. And are you up to our our standards? And I said, well, you know, I had a good year last year. I was I was right fifty two percent of the time, and they were shocked, you know, because <laughs> uh, they had to be right a hundred percent. They were the first one to collapse. And when they collapsed, there was $9 billion. They couldn't find it, but it was actually in a bank account. In it wasn't stolen or anything. It was just by accident went into their own company's bank account in London. And, but they couldn't find it. They made mistakes all the time, but mistakes are a great feedback from the market. And, um, one of the best articles that I think everybody should read, if it was a little better written, was Hayek's a 46, 1946 cover in the American Economic Review. And it was the use of knowledge in society, and particularly paragraphs 10 and 11. Those two paragraphs, uh, I'm, paragraphs talk about the value of feedback loops, you make mistakes and you learn from them. And then he uses the words uh, unique knowledge of time and space, which I opened with when I was talking about comparative advantage, that you don't need to be the best. You can have knowledge of a particular, like I know more about this room 
than you do. Nah, 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 nah. And you know more about that room than I do. That's great value. And you could have a, maybe a hot dog stand at 11 p.m. and not have to compete with 50 people during the day who might be better at it than you are. And I think that leads to the another point that I think is really important, and that is the concept of stress and anxiety, which excessive stress has been linked to every disease from Parkinson's to MS. If you really look back in the literature, you'll start to see the word stress. When you look at it, what it does to cells and your mind and the dendrites and all this, it's a killer. And it leads to what really accelerates. It leads to habits to lower stress, excessive alcohol consumption, drug use, you know, anger. And um, the beauty to me, ultimately, this mind frame the entrepreneurial mind frame is that it leaves you open to changing your life. If you're in an untenable position where you have a boss that we've all been there, I know I have, who no matter what I do, the boss wouldn't like me. Or I was in a position where I just couldn't be good at it. And it was horrible stress, I'm, I'm sure. That may have had it you, yourself. Yeah, we all have. <laughs> <laughs> Not right now, though. Uh, uh-huh. But the ability to think, well, maybe I can change it a little bit and do it this way, or maybe I can actually go do something else, or maybe I can leave and then sell back in to the organization. But stress and anxiety are very seldom talked about in our culture because I think people are embarrassed to say, you know, Sunday nights, I can barely stand it because I got to go to work in this place that I hate it. And that's related to what you and I have been talking about. Totally. The entrepreneurship, the ability to think about changing one's life is a big part of entrepreneurship. Well, I think the entrepreneur has redefined what failure is and what stress is. I think from a failure standpoint, failure, it's like a 180 degree shift, right? You want to fail, right? Because it is essential step to success and to succeeding and to being, you know, into learning and to growing. And so redefining that rule is interesting because I think we all have rules for failure right? If most people's rule is just based on how we've been, you know, conditioned, especially in school. It's like, if you fail, there's something wrong with you. And if there's something wrong with you, then you won't be respected. And if you're not respected, right, then how can you ever be loved? So it really, it's amazing how it comes down to these just essential needs that humans have. Uh, The same thing with stress, right? I think stress comes from us having this expectation of ourself, right? That's predetermined by how we're, how we're wired and conditioned. And when it doesn't go exactly according to plan, right? Suddenly it's like, oh no, what's going what's gonna to happen, right? And our survival instincts from you know thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago kick in. And I think entrepreneurs are, are rewiring it and reframing it and redefining the rules because stress is just a signal, right? Where, hey, there's an opportunity. Failure 
is an opportunity also to, to grow. And using stress to fuel you as opposed to make you retreat, it's, it's incredible how many entrepreneurs out there that have, maybe they, maybe they'll define it or explain it like that, but have owned those two powerful drivers and used it to completely reshape their life. I couldn't agree more. And when I was in Silicon Valley, I snuck away from the group for a little bit and went to, <laughs> went to see. I'm 66, so I have had the benefit of knowing younger people just because I got older. And they're now rising into these positions of like, you're head of, of that firm. You, you've done this and that. It's great. And they feel they have to see me. I'm the senior guy. So I went to see some venture capitalists. They're pretty well known. I'm really proud of them. And I said, well, what's the big breakthrough that made that I can pass along to young people? And they said, we never invest in somebody that hasn't failed twice. And I, I, was, I was stunned. I raised my hand and I go, well, do you think I can get like $200 million for my latest <laughs> idea? You know, I was like, I'm here. You know? <laughs> but there's a lot of beauty in being able to accept is basically negative feedback from the market. You, you missed a market. So what? And learning from that, there's a country in Europe uh, that I visited recently. And if you are a CEO of a company that fails, you never can be a CEO again. Okay. And, and I tried and pretty much succeeded in giving a, a talk to 20 uh, you know, uh, CEOs. And I said, that's the worst policy to have because the learn and they were all going like this, they all agreed that it was, and then we went around the room and each of them had had a major failure, but not as a CEO. It had a failure in middle level, uh, lower level management. And so they weren't blacklisted out of becoming the, the leader. And it was that failure where they learned from it that enabled them to, uh, to, to move up. I think in my own life, I'm trying not to be like Bette Midler, who in Beaches said, enough talking about me. Now let's talk about what you think about me. (laughs) (laughs) Great line. But that's what I know most about is my my own life. But I think of all the things I ended up becoming relative, able to make a livelihood from. And they all began out of some misfortune some fumble, something that went wrong. I got into teaching from being mugged in 81 and then was an acquaintance, I can't say friends, but my grandfather was Ayn Rand's lawyer and he kind of, you know, meet or see me. And then I would just listen and she would uh, talk five, six hours straight. I think she enjoyed having someone to talk to uh, who was familiar with her literature in a very spiritual person. And she, at that time, like wasn't uh, into that. So she would be very direct with me, mystic fool, uh, you know, and I just laugh and say, well, Miss Rosenbaum, which was her real name. And she'd get really <laughs> upset. And she'd go, 
she laughed that Russian laugh, yeah. pure joy, when she'd see the humor in it. And uh, but she, a big life change for me was I was minorly pushed around, uh, mugged, but in front of my uh, girlfriend uh, when I was 20, 25. And now it wouldn't bother me at all. I mean, I would kind of accept it. And my girlfriend was a stronger type person. And she stepped in with these 12-year-olds and, uh, you know, stop that. And they all turn around, drop that screwdriver. They all did it. Get out of here. Leave them alone. And they all ran off. So she was the hero. But to me, that made me the, you know, victim. And I went to see Miss Rand soon after that, not about this. And she, after an hour or so of, you know, her lecturing and brilliantly, she said, you know, what is wrong with you? And I said, nothing. What, what do you mean? She said, what happened? And I said, nothing. She said, you're talking to yourself, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. It's the number one symptom. I said, no, I'm not. And, <laughs> and bless her heart, she got this pre-cell phone. She had one of the long phones out on this desk where she'd written Atlas Shrugged, by the way. Yep. A is A. And she carved it, the plot, into this desk of that um, architect she, she had gotten it during the Fountainhead time period. And she called Albert Ellis. Do you remember that name, Albert Ellis? He's worth researching. He created the concept of rational emotive therapy, where you change your feelings by changing your sentence structure in your mind. And she, you know, was a very strong person. You say, you're going to see him today. I could hear him going, you know, it's a Memorial Day. And he's going, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. <laughs> they weren't even friends. Uh, and But eventually, he said, all right, send him over. And he changed my sentence, you know, from... I feel humiliated because I was unable to stand to defend my girlfriend, four or five, 12 year olds, right? And he, he, he looks at me with contempt. He goes, This is how I spend my holiday with this type of immaturity. Uh, you know, and then he got up and he said, He crossed it off. He said, Now rewrite it in a different way. And I didn't respond. He said, I'll do it for you. And he wrote, I am a hero because under attack, I was able to prevent any violence toward the 12-year-old attackers or my girlfriend. And then he made me write it. He, wasn't, he didn't sit there. He had a graduate student sit there, very humiliating. I had to write it over and over again. But totally cured me. By the end of it, I was just irritated with him that he made me do it <laughs> but had totally forgotten the incident yep and i go up pay him thirty dollars and say i'd be forever grateful anyway blah 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 i said just go home he, you know he was, he was grumpy next morning he calls uh, eight o'clock in the morning he said get up to my office 
in this big, beautiful home on 65th Street. And every, everyone should really read his literature, A Guide to Rational Living, a, a very powerful a literature used by almost every psychologist today. And so I'm thinking, did I not pay? Was I by accident discourteous? Did I steal the china? I'm trying to think, what did I do? I walk in apologizing, thinking he's going to call Rand, who's going to call my grandfather, who's going to call my parents, and I was going to be, you know, out, you know. And, And so I walk in and he goes, I said, whatever I've done, I apologize. He said, don't. Don't be so weak, you know. And, and he says to me, I said, I've been up all night thinking about this. Post-traumatic stress disorder, it comes back. It's a progressive disease. And a minor cure like what, what we did yesterday isn't going to solve it. It's going to come back. And I said, impossible. I'm totally, totally cured. And thank you, um, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you're going to go teach in hardest school you can find that will have similar students that you've become so afraid of, you were traumatized by. And I said, I, you know, I'm past that, Doc, but, but thank you. And then he, he called Rand, who I was scared of, and she got on the phone and said, you, in this Russian accent, I can't imitate it. You do what he says, or there'll be problems. I'm going, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in for a week, stayed 40 years. It was a, uh, it, it, it's been, I've had the most wonderful career because of that, what looked like a, a setback, but it turned into me becoming acquaintances and kind of friends with Albert Ellis and strengthened my relationship with Ms. Rand, got me out of this horror of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the leading cause of suicide in America, is the latest research. Certainly amongst veterans, it's, it's pretty much 100% of the cause, and it is curable. So I hope I didn't talk too long on that. No, this has been amazing, because this is, you know, Steve, there may not be much that people are, well, the, the, it'd be hard to kind of connect how this, this all, it, it, it all relates. That's what's, that's what's amazing, amazing because, you know, if we can all recognize that, you know, there's degrees of, of trauma, right? You could have traumatic experiences like, like those, which is, you know, not necessarily just being attacked, but also, you know, being defended and then the context around that and who should I be as this person and that that happening can ruin a person's life, right? Or it can completely empower them and revolutionize their life. It just depends on what is the way in which it registers up here. Is it empowering or is it belittling? And, you know, I, I just as a maybe a final example, I was at a leadership academy a few uh, months ago and there was this woman who, and there's 3,000 people there, but she was a CEO of a, a nonprofit that served women, uh, widows, but also victims of some pretty dire circumstances. And they had tens of thousands of women in this program. And she was afraid to speak in public, but yet she was a CEO. And looking at, you know, the, her going up, you know, she actually went up and volunteered, went up on stage. And a lot of what the, the background was to, to her not wanting to, to speak or being afraid of speaking was just so irrational, right? But yet to her, it was truth. It was part of her. 
And that was, a rea- that was her reality. But it's going to ver- something very similar to what you experienced with this with uh, Albert Ellis was changing some of the language, changing the tone of voice. She basically defined, what are, you, you know, what are you afraid of? Like, what is the challenge? And it was done in a very, very loving, compa- compassionate way. But she, you know, said the, said the verse, but her, the verse was, you know, very depressed and she was, you know, shrinking. So he, so he had her like change her physiology, change the order in which she used the words. Uh, she had, he had her like, you know, talk in a Mickey Mouse voice and then talk really slow. And, but it, what it does is that those are, those are ideas that this guy obviously connected with. I've never heard, heard of him before, but that's led to just so much science around how we think and what reality is which at early ages impacts your entire life. And we all have them. They're all here, right? And they cause us to behave a certain way. And if we're aware of that, man, ima- imagine what we could do to change that own, our, our own wiring, regardless of how old we are and the new life we can have with just a few different decisions. And that, again, I think it plays into the entrepreneur because you know, that entrepreneurial spirit, as you mentioned in the beginning, it, that, that seed is in, I think it's in most people, if not everyone. And it's the conditions uh, and the environment in which it's, you know, planted, right? And then nurtured that can completely change how a person uses their talents, their abilities, their uniqueness to change not only their own life, but, but everyone uh, around them. And so it's a profound discussion. I had no, I mean, we're almost at an hour and a half. So I, this is one of the longer podcasts I've done, but this has been enlightening for, for me, Steve. And, and I appreciate, you know, what you do and, and, and I appreciate your story how amazing of an example that something so amazing can come from just one little decision. All you had to do is say yes, to going to teach and your entire life changed. And that's the, that's how profound one decision is. So I think that's a, a testament to what's possible with our lives, how much we can uh, enjoy it more, be fulfilled more if we're only open to some very simple fundamental ideas. <laughs> I've enjoyed the show a lot. I thought it was five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I've been on. I had no idea. I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> Amazing. Well, well, Steve, we'll definitely have to connect again. And but, what are? How can the audience learn uh, about you, your new book, obviously, and then also maybe just plug the the film that you are that's currently in production and, and some of the details around that. The book is Goodbye Homeboy. It's been the number one seller on Amazon two days, uh, 50 days since it's come out. I'm real proud of that. And because uh, I was never in the top 500,000 before this book, you know, textbooks don't sell a lot on Amazon. So that was big. that's been a big deal. But for uh, six and a half, almost seven years, I've been working with uh, a team um, and on a documentary that raises this question. And I don't think we're gonna find an answer, but I wanna raise the question. And that is, what happens to the entrepreneur during times of war or genocide? There's no literature on it. There's, other than Gone with the Wind, that just has the character, great movie, but just has the characters as entrepreneurs. There's no real discussion of it. The people that are written about during these times are always heads of this government and this government. I'm not belittling them. You know, Churchill was obviously did great good. And I 
the more we read about them, and I, I think that's all great. But not once did Churchill, who published 3.7 million words, Nobel Prize for Literature, did he ever mention small business, the entrepreneur, and he had less than 400 words on the Industrial Revolution. Wow. So in history, the entrepreneur is invisible. Even the literature on Pompeii, where almost everybody there was self-employed, you go there, and it's just a mass of small businesses that were the people uh, died from the volcano, tragically. But they died in what they were doing. And for some reason, invisible people have not thought about that issue of the entrepreneur as being somebody that is can be broken out, analyzed, and that might give us great insights into how to prevent and how to connect the entrepreneurs of the world. Because I think they're a great source of underutilized energy and knowledge. They're never encouraged to go into politics or very seldom. They, there's whole fields they're prevented from going into. They're never in the history books, or if they are, it's one sentence. And I'd like to do a small part to change that with this documentary that raises the question, what happens to them in this particular time uh, when there's war or genocide? I thought of it in Cambodia. and went back to the town where the, uh, this revolution started that began as a free market limited tax movement and then was taken over by Pol Pot and uh, nine other uh, individuals that were in, in an um, actual communist cell. And they used a one-page document that everybody should read. It's, I never read anything like it. It's called the Manifesto of Equals. And it's 880, uh, 880 words written in 1793 by LaMarche. I'll use the word evil. I never read a more disturbing page. It basically argues you can kill anyone who is, they started with people that wore glasses because they would be theoretically smarter. Then they kill people with passports because they've been out of the country. They then killed anyone who owned anything. And it all came from that one page that they had found at the University of Paris translated in, into Kymer, uh, the Cambodian language and used it to train young people under Pol Pot. And it led to this, just three million people out of eight million people were murdered in 24 months. But that's a clue. You know, I don't know what the answer is, but that's something I think everybody should know about. Okay. And then, so is it still, so it's in production. Is it, uh, do you have like a date in which it's going to be finished or is it still kind of a work in progress and nothing definitive? Um, We're we're hoping uh, Harold Klein and Nan Klein have been working with me for two and a half years and are just wonderful film uh, makers. Like the executive producer, I raise the money and keep the vision going. We think it'll be done as early as mid-January. 
And um, so I'm interviewing distributors and learning about the film industry. Mm. And I've been going, I went to Cannes Film Festival and went to Toronto Festival and um, was on the cover of the trade journals there, which it wasn't me, it was, it was the film because everybody is, when they watch it, they're fascinated by the question in the interviews. So I think it's, it's going to actually open up a whole level of debate and discussion that could be very valuable. Well, we'll make sure we get all of these links on the, on the show notes so that our audience can, can go to, because I know you have a trailer out for the, for the film, but also a link to, to buy the book uh, and learn and also learn more about you on your own, on your own website. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for this time. I know this wasn't budgeted in your, in your schedule, but it worked out for mine and I'm super grateful to, to meet somebody who knew uh, and interacted with Ayn Rand face to face on a very you know, in, intimate level, but also just such an example of what we've been talking about on this season. It's been, uh, it's been amazing. It's like there's so many different elements of all the different guests this season and how we pretty much summarized it with the interview with you. It's been amazing. Thank you. All right, Steve, we'll, talk to, we'll, we'll definitely have you on uh, sometime in the future. I look forward to it. If I'm invited, I'll be here. So I learned a ton as well. So it was wonderful. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.